Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Oh, everything's crooked. Reality is poison. I, I want to go back. I hate this. Lambs to the cosmic slaughter! Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I wanted to find out what my dog Charlie really thinks of me. So I put him in an fMRI machine. Guess what I found out? He really isn't as into you as you, you thought. <laughs> He's kind of over it. Well, according to the, the readout, uh, <laughs> That after doing the data analysis, you crunch the data and yeah, in, in your Linux uh, box. He wishes I wouldn't walk around in my underwear so much. Been, he doesn't want other people looking at you with that hunger in their eyes. <laughs> that, that's the part of his brain that was activated. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I didn't think I didn't interpret. I might have to put him back in. I didn't interpret it that way. That he's actually jealous. He was. Of see, the- you never know. <laughs> you need more jealous dog data. Or to, to like compare. I could do a controlled experiment where I did it with the curtains closed, put them in an fMRI machine, see <laughs> if that still bothered him. I can't believe you brought this up. You're just going to have more people emailing and tweeting us that, that you could use it as a lie detector. Well, it pissed me off that because I wish he wouldn't get a boner when he takes a shit. You know? <laughs> it, <it's, laughs> it reminds me of our pooping on ecstasy episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what it, he, he clearly is. I don't think he's taking ecstasy as far as I know, or at least if he is, he's not uh, sharing. If we he, were well calibrated in our pleasure response about pooping, we would never poop. Like, I feel like it's an evolutionary trick to make it kind of feel good. So you can't blame the dog for no. kind of popping, popping a boner. No, I, no, that's true. And, and then when I put him in an fMRI machine to see what he responded to that, he was like, well, why are you looking at my penis when I take a shit in the first place? And that's fair. I think that's actually a fair point. It's uh, like fMRI is like the dog translators and up. Enough, yeah, exactly. We would never be able to get to that to that <laughs> stage of knowledge if it weren't for fMRI first. Actually, those are just really, really little fMRI machines. On <laughs> yeah, I mean, how did those work? Did, was there any even like attempt at an explanation? Like, I didn't, I don't remember seeing a Vox article about how that wouldn't actually work. Like, you can't actually have a recorder that. <laughs> That where dogs talk, that translates dogs' thoughts into into speech. But totally implausible. That is for all of our new listeners. That is not a reference you will get. <laughs> I I I don't know if that it's just 
funny to me because it was actually really funny or because I'm kind of drained from this week and like everything just seemed I haven't going to get the giggles before we even start. Uh. Uh, so, by the way, I saw Inside Out again, figuring that, you know, a lot of people I respect liked it and I didn't and I saw it again and it's just not that good. It really isn't a very, like I, it put, it's like the, I don't know, like I put the, pulled the wool over any, anyone's eyes. I, I, I'm tempted to agree with you. I just found it, uh, I was, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I was incapable of separating how much it was just because that's what I study for a living, that it's kind of interfered. It felt like it was kicking me into work mode when they were talking about emotions and stuff and basic emotions. And I was like, ah, it's not fun. It's not, just not that fun. I, I don't want to think about, about, you know, whether Lisa Feldman Barrett is right about, you know, <laughs> about basic emotion while I'm watching a fucking movie from Pixar. So inside out is a movie with a story. And speaking of stories, <laughs> we are five years, five years of professionalism right there. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk about the story of your life or is your life a story? Do you experience your life as a story, as a narrative? Do you experience yourself as continuing? And if so, does that continuing self take some sort of narrative form? Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in the second segment. But in the first segment, Dave is going to try to defend a new study <laughs> in his field. <laughs> to me, strikes me as somewhat ridiculous. This is all you. This is uh, you. Actually, you actually downloaded the article. You read it. Like you, you, you seem to care about this. Uh, this story. Well, I mean, so this so story. this is a listener that suggested this. So thanks to that listener um, for sending it. It is a paper called. Well, so in in the press there were a bunch of articles saying children don't learn moral lessons from books about animals. Like yeah. books that have animal like, characters, essentially. Take that, Aesop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you fucking uh, idiot. He's so full of himself, too. And I know. Uh, so the the general idea is if you if you have a story and you have like kind of anthropomorphized characters like a Bug's Life or like uh, like Frog and Toad, Frog <laughs> right. and Toad, the tortoise and the hare, the tortoise Wait. and the hare. Then they won't learn a moral lesson from it. But if they have little, if they have people, then they will learn a moral lesson from it. So that's a pretty striking finding, I guess. When you look at the actual study, though, it just it's uh, it it seems a little too strong a conclusion to draw from this study. It did it, it. It just disappointed you. I can tell. I can tell from the affect with which you're. Well, um, so here's the study. Um, they gave children from four to six children, and there are like how many of them? Thirty of them. Ninety six children. They had a story, some sort of story about animal characters or human characters. Yeah. So animal characters dressed up like humans or human characters. They get they read the story, and then they gave a bunch of the preschoolers stickers. And the, the ones in the 
the human condition, the, the, where there are actually human beings rather than anthropomorphized animals, were more likely to, significantly more likely, to share the stickers. Right. And the control, the control task was a story about seeds. A story about seeds, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, what, what do you, before I launch into anything, what do you think of this study? Because we haven't this talked is, about it at all. Yeah, we, ha- we haven't at all. Um, this is one of those cases where, you know, I, I get their thinking. Their thinking is they're going to go to this big question about do they learn a moral lesson? And they're like, well, how, how would you test whether they learn a moral lesson? And the way that they determined that kids would have learned a moral lesson is by very, very specifically defining learning a moral lesson as having decided to donate <clears throat> more stickers to a kid who didn't get a sticker. So 10 stickers, your choice is to how many do you want to give to a needy child, a, a child who's maybe, who's, uh, <coughs> maybe anthropomorphized animals make kids more libertarian. Yeah, that's right. There's no free lunch. They're just like yelling. <clears throat> um, so, so, you know, like I get that this is a cool way of studying something. It seems, it seems as if like just defining uh, you know, narrowing it down to a way that's measurable and quantifiable is like a, it's a nifty thing to do. And you're kind of forced to measure it somehow. Like you can't, you know, it's not a very strong effect. So I'm trying to find the means right here. Um, so, uh, they have, like, there's a significant difference between the human stories and the animal and control stories. Um, isn't there just one story? Uh, well, it's the one story with the humans right. compared to the one story with the animals compared to the story with the seeds. I didn't actually look at the story. But, they, but they're the exact same story. <clears throat> right. Except for the, the book about seeds, I guess, is not a story. So, right. so we don't, we don't, I don't know what's going on. I didn't actually. And it's about sharing, I guess. The little book is about sharing. And animal sharing is, is like significantly less, like 30 people per condition it's significantly less, but it's a, it's. Eh, what know, are it's the like numbers? Literally, the difference between they share in the human condition, they share an average of two stickers before and after they read the story, they share two point nine stickers. So slightly, slightly under one sticker increased in the animal condition. They shared two point three before and one point six nine after. So you know. It's a significant effect. And then in the control story, they shared two before and 1.5 after. So there's no difference, I don't think, between the control and the animal condition. I'm amazed that the seed con- control, <laughs> that they Just were reading. willing to share any stickers at all after s- sitting through a story about seeds. <laughs> about but, seeds. So uh, here, here's the other thing, though. So there's the problem of that's how you measure learning a moral lesson. You know, how many stickers, like two or one or three to to give to another kid. That doesn't bother me as much as how do we know that it's like this story is better at imparting a, a moral lesson or a sharing lesson if it's human beings rather than animals. But if you actually had like a story that was designed to be, you know, to take advantage of whatever you can do when you make characters animals, then that would also be just as effective. 
Um, right. So yeah. like it's 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 not it's it's not like they looked at real honest to god stories and you know and then measured their effect of reading a, like a bunch of little human stories and a bunch of animal stories that are that actually exist, right? And then right. like I would have more respect for that study, but because they want to control it or what's right. the word, operationalize it so precisely, they have to pretty much make up a story. And then, like, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that maybe that story, it works better if the characters are in human form rather than animal form. But I wouldn't generalize anything about, like, animal stories and human stories from that. Right. It's a real trade-off because what what they're showing is, at best, the claim that, as a rule, animal stories will work just as well is wrong because, you know, I I think they're trying something like falsification here where like, if your claim is that all animal stories would work, um, then this is a piece of evidence to refute that claim. But I, but that's, that's not really what they're saying. What they're saying. (laughs) I think we have to be like super careful in any of these studies to include way more than one stimulus because or else you just never know as you say exactly like whether or not this is a quirk of this particular story you can imagine that like stories with animals where uh like certain kinds of actions work better because kids can imagine those ac- animals doing those actions better than they can with humans or something. You can imagine like a whole host of, of real moderators that would make animal stories better in some cases. And they didn't bother um, to do this. I always give a little bit of a pass when you're dealing with four or five year old kids because it's hard to do. Like it really is hard to do. But, but I don't want to give them a pass in general for their discussion section, right? Because that's where you're just like, just say... At best, what we showed is that animal stories aren't always better than human stories or they're not always equivalent because we showed this one case in which it's not. And that's if you really even think that 30 people per condition is enough to test this um, and that one sticker difference is actually capturing some real, you know. like I mean, yeah, this sort of highlights to me a bunch of different, like that, that's why I thought this was maybe worth discussing. Like, this highlights a bunch of different problems in these kinds of psychology experiments and the danger of, you know, generalizing. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but, but, you know, how then it gets reported in the press is, um, is partly not their fault, but as you say, in the discussion and in just the way it's talked about really throughout the paper... They don't do anything to discourage. Um, no, because you know. they say stuff like the present study examined whether storybooks with human or anthropomorphized right. animals. No, it did it, and like, it's like, yeah, your made-up story. There's this funny thing, and like, I don't know if other people noticed this, but when experimental philosophy was first starting out, so like philosophers who actually want to ask empirical questions. I would always be so amazed at the careful way in which they would talk about things in the introduction and the discussion. Like they, you really measured really like, you know, conceptually clean. And then the middle part was often like a, like not a very good study, right? Cause methodologically it was just too simple or too, but social psychologists or in this case, developmental psychologists would do, do the opposite. Like I think it literally is the case that we often 
treat our discussion section is just like, oh, no, let me just riff on like the general theme here. And so we'll say things like, okay, the current findings suggest that we can use storybooks to teach young children to behave pro-socially. However, we must be cognizant of the type of story characters depicted to ensure that the moral of a story and you just can't, like, it just doesn't follow. Like, at yeah. best, at best, you're following those rules of trying to falsify something, but then you're turning it into some sort of positive claim that it, that now you've discovered what the best way to teach a moral lesson is. And you just haven't. You just haven't. Like, I would be so much more inclined to think this is an interesting study if they did not make those conclusions. But, of course, who would write, who would write about it? Right. If you just said, look, if you create a story and you randomly make the characters human or... Well, first of all, you'd need a lot more people and you'd need to show that this wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And you'd want to do it with, uh, with... Then Even then, I wouldn't draw any general lessons from it, but I think it would be interesting. But this just isn't interesting to me because you have no idea what leads to this fairly small result. It, you turn... Fro frog and Toad are friends. Not to harp on yeah. Frog and Toad. It just wouldn't work if they were just two, two little people, right? Dude. Like, that would make no That would make no sense, right? <laughs> right, right, right. The grasshopper and the, the Aesop fable where, like, one of them saves, like, for winter and the other and the other animal doesn't oh, and it's like yeah. a feature of the animal that is yeah. is is critical to understanding the moral <laughs> right. of the story whereas <laughs> like bob doesn't save his money <laughs> and jim does <laughs> in the winter bob starves and and there are all kinds of maybe boring reasons why um this this effect might or it could be that just talking about people is enough to get them to think about like donating more than one sticker um it could, you know, it could be that like the animal story made them put them in a better mood and in a better mood, you just don't care like to share. As who, who knows? Like there's a lot of interesting questions that you might ask about why this is the case. I like nothing in this study makes me think that you couldn't teach a moral lesson with a story that was about animals. Although, but I believe that maybe this story is right. one that uh, is better told with humans. I also like that, you know, that just occurred to me. I had never read stories to Eliza to teach her a moral lesson, right? Like, you just right. want a good story. Especially <laughs> right. since you're going to end up reading the fucking thing like 500 times. You want a good yeah. story, not like a story that but, might make her share one extra sticker. And uh, so, also, is that the best? Is like how many stickers they decided to give to a strange kid. Is that the best way to assess this? I mean, when people complain about liberal bias, like, and I shrug it off, it's not inconceivable that somebody would say that you're not, that that's not really a moral lesson. Um, right. That in fact, the virtue of saving what you've earned or something might be a moral lesson. And it's not clear that this is the best test of actual morality to like give a kid you never saw one of your stickers. Like, I don't know. On first reading, it seems like, okay, that's a straightforward way to measure pro-social behavior or whatever. But what but if he uses that sticker for ill? To buy more drugs. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> that's what, probably what the kids were thinking. Like a little, he would have just used that sticker on, on liquor. <laughs> There's like a little kid with a, a, a cardboard box that says, why lie? I need a sticker. <laughs> uh, they're just going to use it to sniff the glue on the back of <laughs> <laughs> Fucking liberal bias. Liberal bias. This is what Speaking of liberal bias, you uh, 
are the star of talking about race. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you want to, is, is this intelligence part three? Is this- you did get into a Twitter war. Like for the first time ever, I had to mute like a conversation on Twitter that you were having. I know. I, saw, I, I almost stopped copying you on it, but I kind of wanted you to just see like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the downward descent of my, uh, I saw career. it, I think long before you, you saw it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, no. I could tell that wasn't going anywhere good. I know. I, I, uh, I'll say this. I am pleasantly surprised at how people, how, how civil people were and how careful at, and measured and thoughtful they were in their feedback, even if, when people thought I was full shit or whatever. Or when like, there they was a really yeah. yeah, when they just, there was a really lively Facebook discussion. I, I encourage you to check it out if you care at all. <clears throat> um, because... In fact, shout out to Pam Berkeley for for like just actually uh, taking the time to explain things that I didn't do a good job of explaining. But, she was like your uh, enforcer on that. <laughs> like she was your Weebay. <laughs> she was taking motherfuckers out. Yeah, in a in a smarter way that I could do. So yeah. you know, it was it was tough. Is it was obviously tough not not so much because of the political content or whatever, but it's just a really it's a really tough thing to study and you and I prepared for it. You, for the record, we decided that you were going to take the role of, of playing sort of the, the person who was asking questions so that I could actually explain it. Cause I was really nervous that I couldn't explain this well. So I actually w- was hoping clarify this, clarify that. And, and I think it's one of the only times where we've just explicitly been, <laughs> at least I have been just like, I need to be, do my best to clarify my thoughts in a way that people are going to understand. And I knew, I think a lot of the the conversation arose from my inability to properly communicate this stuff. And so that's why people who did it better than me, I'm thankful for. But I'm, I have to say, despite like whatever Twitter argument I was in now, I was nervous for a day and, and I'm just, I've been just like almost bowled over with how, how good people were about this. And I definitely, I mean, we'll, we're not in support yet, but the recommend going to our Facebook page and participating in that discussion because, and it generally is fairly respectful and uh, and and high level discussion. Like it's yeah. it's in some ways, I'm it's like one of the things I'm most proud of that you know there was there's this venue right now, and I wish you know maybe we could look into urging people to go to Reddit. Um, right. the, 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 you the know, subreddit like, yeah there is a very bad wizard subreddit so maybe, yeah. maybe that's a better place for people who don't who aren't on Facebook or who don't want to be on Facebook do we have anything more to say about the childhood study uh, I you know can, I do want to say this one thing which is people call me out on calling James Damore a douchebag and oh, I, yeah. I don't I, I actually want to apologize for it because it's not it, it is not fair of me to I I, it's not that I'm opposed to calling people douchebags. It's that in this case, I don't have enough information about the guy to have said that. And it was based on a very quick reading of his Twitter feed. And so I don't know. I like, I'm not saying he's not, but I do Withdrawn. think I, especially in a discussion like that, where people are really heated and we appreciate uh, when you call us out on doing something like that. <laughs> All right, let's take a break and we'll be right back to talk about narrative narrative. 37 people dead, more than 1,300 injured, more than 4,000 arrested, damage estimates $200 million and rising. 
The man who'd become the unwilling symbol of this outbreak of violence decided it was time to speak out. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, we'd like to take a moment, as we always do about this time, to thank our listeners. Uh, really, we appreciate it. We mentioned this at the beginning, but we very much appreciate the healthy discussion that you've had about our episodes. If you want to engage in any of that uh, communication with us or with our other listeners, you can go to our Facebook page. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at verybadwizards or at Tamler and at Pease. Again, we read every email. So yeah, you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, there's a Very Bad Wizards account there. Um, right, Lie, there's a Very Bad Wizards account on Instagram. <laughs> I'm on Instagram too. You can follow me. Pease is my name. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, we very much appreciate that. You can go to our website, verybadwizards.com, and you can see a support page there that tells you all of the different ways. Um, you can just shop on Amazon by clicking on the link and then buying as you would normally. Same price to you. We get a little chunk of it. We really appreciate that. You can donate one time on PayPal or you can go to our Patreon page, um, patreon.com slash verybadwizards and sign up to be our regular supporter and you'll get some treats like a, a newsletter, some beats, and uh, get a chance to influence what topics we choose. So we really appreciate all of those people who have signed up there. Um, We're a little behind on our newsletter. We're sorry. This, for both of us, is a really busy semester, <laughs> but we will yeah. get the next newsletter out. And I know, Dave, you're doing... Uh, yeah, you I have... have a uh, I've lined up. I've lined up my shout out to my little nephew, Damani McDowell Jr. He's going to be uh, helping me with my beat CD. He's an engineer producer, so we that that should come out sometime. And we're looking uh, for other ways to reward our Patreon listeners. So that's right. One, uh, one, one night, one night with Tamler's dog. <laughs> very very special night with Tamler's dog. <laughs> Oh, I rate think. us on iTunes. You always oh, yeah. forget that. I know. It's it's a sort of a signal of where my priorities lie, isn't it? Why <laughs> do you care about iTunes? I don't uh, buy it. I don't buy you, your <laughs> indifference. I just think very, very few people scroll down. Like, when have you scrolled down, drilled down to the, the sub-genre list of some other podcast area to look at what the top... <laughs> It's not know. about that. It's about <laughs> this is it's about our self-worth. <laughs> it's about it's about the core of our in the story that you tell about yourself, Tamler. 
does the iTunes do the iTunes reviews really figure <laughs> centrally in the? <laughs> you're learning, yes. you're <laughs> my son. You're learning the art of uh, the segue. So today we are going to talk about a topic that I don't believe that we have talked about at all, which is this idea of how we experience ourselves and how we experience our lives. And we're talking about two papers by Galen Strawson that I will post at the very least. Yeah, we'll post on our uh, webpage, barring like getting sued or something like that. One of them um, definitely is out is out in the public because I already put a link to it. The other one, we might have to. So it's uh, one of them is called Against Narrativity and the other is called um, Episodic Ethics. And so, and they're both by Galen Strawson, who is a philosopher now at UT Austin, uh, oh, wow. but he's a British philosopher, the son of P.F. Strawson, who we've talked about quite a bit on this That's podcast, right. and who Galen calls P.F. Strawson. That's right. He doesn't say dad. So he's also somebody I know. He was on my dissertation committee. Um, He's a really interesting guy, does really interesting work. He was the first interview I did also for A Very Bad Wizard. He got uh, you. Way back in 2003. He was the first sucker who opened the door for everybody. You to like, name, like, yeah, and I was like a second year grad student or something like that, and he just told, and he just agreed, agreed to do it, or that previous version of Galen agreed to do it. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't him. Yeah. So he he wrote this pair of interesting papers um, that challenge what. I believe is kind of a dominant view in philosophy and psychology about how we experience our lives and how we experience ourselves. So his his target is what he calls, well, two targets, the psychological narrative thesis and the normative narrative thesis. The psychological narrative thesis is that we experience our lives as kind of a continuous story, some sort of story with some sort of form. And then the normative narrative thesis, I want to stop saying thesis (laughs) because I'm struggling with that word, is that uh, you have to experience your life that way in order to lead a good life slash a moral life, like a good right. life or a moral <clears throat> life. Right. And authentic, an authentic life. Yeah. He yeah. thinks both of those both of those positions are false. And he goes into a lot of detail to try to uh, argue against them. He also, just to add an extra complication, um, talks about two different kinds of ways to imagine yourself. One is diachronic, and I'll just quote him here. One naturally figures oneself, the self or person one now experiences oneself to be, as something that was there in the past and something that will be there in the future. So in other words, like, I think of myself, I also think that I was myself, that same self back in, you know, two years ago, five years ago when we started doing this podcast. I 
think of myself as still me, myself, you know, six months from now when, when we've had our final big fight and we stop doing the podcast. <laughs> the, la- the very last episode will be about play diets. <laughs> that's how you'll know that we're about to <laughs> sign off. So that's the diachronic view that you just can, you actually think of that person, you know, you have these memories. You think everyone has these memories, but uh, the diachronic person, when you have this memory, you think of it as you, and the episodic person, you have these memories, but you don't identify with the the person in those memories. Right. right? It's like a it's like a deep sense of identity of continuity, where there is like some sort of essential you that is experiencing all of these things. Like you, you, per, you know, David at age five experienced this and had these thoughts and these memories. And, and now me is the same, is the same thing as yeah. so. And I think it's, it's like, he, he goes to great lengths to say, it's not that he's saying that he doesn't obviously know that the memories of Galen at age 12 are in some very real physical sense the ones in his brain and that he was Galen right. Strawson back then. Um, it's a deeper, you know, hopefully people can intuit that sense in which he means, that deeper sense of identity over time. Yeah, so, like, I'll, again, I'll just quote him. I need to say more about the episodic life since I find myself to be relatively episodic. I'll use myself as an example. I have a past like any human being, and I know perfectly well that I have a past. I have a respectable amount of factual knowledge about it, uh, uh, and I also remember some of my past experiences from the inside, as philosophers say. And yet, I have absolutely no sense of my life as a narrative with form, or indeed as a narrative without form. Absolutely none. Nor do I have any great or special interest in my past, nor do I have a great deal of concern for my future. So I think the episodic aspect of what he's talking about you're not interested in that in that previous person that you know is in your memories is in your experiences you have no greater interest in that person or or you know not much more interest in that person than you know a memory of a different person you don't like identify any more with uh, or at least not too much more with that uh, right. Episodic, you didn't say this, but episodic is is his label for the opposite of yeah, diachronic. Right. Yeah. The the final distinction before you launch into this um, is that a diachronic self, somebody who experiences their themselves as continuing through time, doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who experiences their life as a narrative. I guess because you could you could imagine just oh that was me but there's no sort of form or structure or arc or anything that we associate with narrative to my life i can intuit exactly what he means so you could be diachronic you can have the continuous experience of yourself as identity like i am me who i was like 10 years ago but there's no real structure to the things that happen to you in a narrative sense like it's just yeah. me that's the, all these things are happening to me and i feel like it's me um, right. but there's no there's no cohesion to the you know 
there's no beginning, middle, and end. There's no there's no plot twists. It's just a bunch it's, of shit. There's that no happens. building towards something or kind of declining towards something or exactly yeah. anything that you associate with a story is not. You could imagine feeling yourself not being uh, pulled by that. But what if my story is a story with a bunch of anthropomorphic animals? Yeah, I know. Then you won't teach any moral lessons, then. which you haven't. So maybe exactly. it is your story. It's just so much. For me, it's like dogs taking a shit with boners. You know, like I can't believe that hasn't taught Eliza like valuable moral lessons. There's no, there's no plot twist. It's just a bunch of episodes of dogs <laughs> pooping with boners. So where do you situate yourself? Yeah, in, I was, yeah. was going to ask you the same thing, and I had a very so. So the, these two papers, one of them he focuses on narrative versus non-narrative, right? Um, and he introduces the episodic diachronic distinction, but he doesn't focus on it. And the other one, he focuses on that diachronic versus episodic. And I found myself hilariously sort of nodding my head to the non-narrative. Like, I very much don't think of my life as a story, and I think it's weird that people do, and I think we'll get into all the reasons why. Um, but I am diachronic. Like, I very much do feel like it was always me. Um, and so, so I, I found it very hard to catch his clear intuitions about what, how normal an episodic life can be. (laughs) So that's, that's the sort of more, most radical part of what he's saying is to try to make sense of living your life episodically in the sense that you really don't identify with your previous selves or your future selves. That's that's where you could actually question whether he really feels that way, right. right? Whether he really experiences his life that way. One of the things that's really good about these papers is that, you know, he's pretty honest in trying to express something that is ultimately subjective, you know, yeah. how you experience your life. But he, he goes to great lengths to try to portray how it feels to be him from the inside you're you're diachronic but non-narrative is that where you would i think so i think so i want to chime in though and say that he he does go to great lengths. so i I feel like when he was describing the episodic uh way of being i was so resistant and you can even see my notes i'm just like what the fuck with you know like this is not and then i think he did a good enough job that i i at least he's sincere. It really seems as if he has a different experience than I do. Um, yeah. And it's not it's not so crazy to think that somebody could could live this way. And we, maybe you were planning on talking about this before, but there's a you know there is the literature on identity and, and Derek Parfit. Yeah. I think lands at this very this he, very well, and, and Derek Parfit was his dissertation supervisor. Oh, okay. uh, so it all makes sense. Like right. uh, Galen Strawson went to Oxford and Derek Parfit has a view about that's kind of similar. It's in some ways more radical that he thinks we're not the same people as in our past or in our future. And therefore, like when we save for retirement, we're just giving a lot of money to some random person. Yeah, it's like a form of altruism. Yeah, right. It's a form of altruism, but a very kind of idiosyncratic, bizarre kind of altruism. (laughs) Just picking some random guy to give all your money to, you know. (laughs) So we'll talk about it. But just to sort of say where I am. Yeah. Because I was trying to figure this out. 
So I think for the narrative thesis to be plausible, it can be, it doesn't have to be a story like with a three act structure or, and it doesn't <laughs> it have be like to uncom- a, It could be a shitty story. It could be like a bad movie, like a, just all over the place. And I also don't think it has to be like one story. Like you could think of like different phases of your life as stories. So there was the story of my life, you know, uh, from middle school to college, the story of my life in college to just after, the story of my life when Eliza was born, uh, the story of my life starting when I went to graduate school, you know, so like, and, and, and these stories can overlap and they can, and, and you don't need to make a clean. So <laughs> you're I saying think your life would not just be one book. It would be a whole bunch of really amazing scholars for years with hundreds of years, like James, <laughs> Tem- Tess, like Tem- puzzling over three. how they thematically connect and how, what's a dream and what's not a dream and, you know. <laughs> Uh, what's 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 hate masturbation and what's genuine (laughs) masturbation right and can you draw such a clear distinction between the two so understood that way i do kind of maybe think of my life as having phases that are loosely connected you know and i'm definitely diachronic but i but i you know the stronger narrative thesis that you experience your whole life as like one big story that this is something that you're constantly revising and rewriting and trying to make the best possible story that you can that's not something i you know i i that i experience at all like i never think of and and i think some people do like uh, the way that i think of it is how much order are you imposing Or, or seeing, maybe not imposing. How much order are you seeing in the things yeah. that happen to you? Right. And like, is there a pattern? Exactly. Yeah. And I really do feel comfortable saying there's just a bunch of shit that happened to me. Um, maybe in a way that other people just there are people there are a group of people who it totally makes sense if you if if you say like hey what's your story like they would know what to say yeah like they and and i just wouldn't i'd be like if you if i had to tell a story i could tell it in so many different ways like a bunch of just random accidents that happened to me or the story of like whatever you know it it would be literally me imposing some order that i don't i don't secretly embrace first of all i do see a pattern in your story (laughs) it's a destructive downhill it's just downhill bunch of questions we could ask first of all like to what extent do you think there's diversity in how people experience their lives but you know when you said in your foreword for the very bad wizard book a sneaky manifesto of a moral pluralist right I, i was taking a walk i was walking my dogs with my wife and i i was saying like if i could like Oh, that's kind of a thread that runs through all the books. Yeah. You know, like The Very Bad Wizard, Relative Justice, the new honor book, when that comes out, like there is this kind of pluralism that I've graduated towards, and that's kind of a story. Uh, Although, so yeah, no, I maybe it's actually easier to see this when you're thinking about other people's lives, where I think... It's not so much a story, but it is very, like, I'm very diachronic in the sense that I think that these things, what these things have in common is some, some essential Tamler to them that you may not have even noticed. Right. It is not, not much of a narrative, but it is the output of the same person. 
right? right? And you may not have noticed the thread, and I didn't notice until I really had to think about it. It makes sense to me that the same person would would come back to similar ideas. And I, I don't know if you noticed that. So how, I noticed where would my, that what what would that mean for him and his I think view? That, I like think is, that, is that compatible with that being uh, an episodic person that other he, people can see patterns in their behavior? And their thought. And yeah, their- it's a hard thing. And like, a, it's, a, it's hard to pin down what exactly he thinks about this because he's very much taking this as a, what is your first person view of yourself? And mm-hmm. so you, you could imagine that all he's saying is that the same shit happens to everybody. Different people just happen to organize it in their head in different ways. Some people need to think of themselves as having a continuous identity. Um, some people don't. Or, or never think that they do. Some people naturally do. Some people naturally don't. I mean, I think that's got to be it. Because everybody obviously has certain patterns of behavior. Right. And right. other, it's easier often yeah. for other people to notice your patterns. I think, though, the one difference to bring, to quickly bring the Parfit view, if I recall correctly, Par, so Parfit came to his view in a, in a very bottom-up kind of way. I think he concluded that this must be the truth about identity and had to come to terms with viewing himself in this way. I think he's actually right. making like a, a more of a metaphysical claim that there is, in fact, no person. And I had to realize this, yes. and I fought it at first, and now I'm comfortable right. with the truth, right? Yeah, no, right. Whereas Galen is doing it from a f- kind of phenomenological perspective, from from the inside, subject, exactly. subjectively. Really making no sort of radical ethical claims about what follows from the fact that he experiences life this way. All he's saying is, and we'll get to this, that you can live as an episodic, a good and moral life. Right, right, exactly. That's That seems central to his point, which I, the sort of motivation to make this distinction is that um, he thinks that, that people, people believe that some moral aspects turn on whether or not you are diachronic or narrative. Parfit thinks that whatever, however you experience your life, you're really not the same person as you are, you know, so it really doesn't matter. And this is true for everybody. And it's, 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 and whereas Galen is just saying some people experience life this way, some people experience life that way, both kinds of people can be moral people and and lead good lives. So you really don't see any kind of arc or form. So he talks about like, there's three different like form finding storytelling revision you know yeah. some uh, like a a guy from where are you from riverside <laughs> yeah seventh day adventist my uh one of my advisors in grad school peter salvace recommended to me a book by a former yale professor on autobiographical memory and it was very much this view of like narrative autobiographical narrative as a way for understanding sort of memory. And I was like, that's it seemed weird to me. Like that when I, like there's autobiography, like when I think about the memories of things that I've experienced, but the whole narrative talk really threw me off. And I thought like this was some, some weird attempt to find, it did seem to be a descriptive psychological claim that this is how people organize memories about themselves. And I couldn't, I couldn't grok it. I couldn't, into it. So let me ask this, because I, I think I, I like I have a clear answer to this question. Do you have like memories of 
experiences that you consider formative, this was something that kind of, to some extent, made me who I am. Some yes, yes, I can. There are definitely, but well, I take this as a, is more of the diachronic aspect. Like I believe that I am shaped by my former experiences. I think about what somebody said to me that one time and how it changed my view. Um, or like, uh, you know, my, my mom actually, uh, ch- changed. I, I was looking to apply to grad programs in psychology. So I'd picked my 10 PhD programs and I was struggling to find master's programs in psychology that I would apply to. And I found Yale and my mom was helping me at the time we had to type these applications. And she said, and so then right before I had to submit it, she's like, just check the PhD box. And I was like, fine. And that, literally that is why I went to Yale. Well, <laughs> except that's sort of not what I mean. What I mean by a formative experience is it not that it led to a big change in your life, but it kind of formed your character. Like that's what I think would be bordering yeah. on that yeah. you experience your life narratively. So here's this thing that happened to me when I was 10 or here the the summer I spent in you know, where are, you know, in, uh, Buenos Aires and like, I I wouldn't have the personality that I have today if it wasn't for that, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't think like that. So there are events like I remember that I feel like shaped my identity, but not, it seems so external. Like it's a thing that happened that shaped my identity, but in no way does it fit with some narrative. Like, it's just a thing that happened. It, it's like when you, you know, if you ask somebody like, why do you have that scar? And they're like, well, this one time I fell out of a tree and I, you know, gashed, I got a big gash on my side. That's why that scar is there. I guess that's a story. But to me, it's just an event that happened to shape my identity rather than my physical body. I, right. I think, though, that like I, 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 I take those kinds of things more seriously. So my, I have a brother. We're 14 years apart and he and we have different mothers we're really close but we have very different personalities i trace a lot of our differences and and you know we both trace the differences in our personality in some in large part to the fact that we had totally different childhoods completely different right. childhoods like different places different like amount of money he got like he was like a little spoiled not rich kid but middle to upper middle class kid i was a like a scrappy underdog (laughs) like your blue collar and i'm not going to go into all the different kinds of experiences that we had but like i see that as part of the diff like just like if i was telling the story of our differences i would this is how i would tell it that makes me think i'm narrative like that i experience my life narratively and if not then i don't know what narrative is i what i wonder i've often wondered whether there's a cultural difference in in this i i wonder if there is a very western um, perhaps especially american way in which we describe our lives yeah um that that to me, like if I think about thinking this way, I kind of just hear my mom telling me that that's horribly self-indulgent to, to like, <laughs> right? To, to like craft this story. Like we think of ourselves um, as like Horatio Alger stories. Yeah. We came, <laughs> we came from, and I'm I'm just more like an ironic O. Henry story, <laughs> right? Or like a penthouse letters. How about that? <laughs> 
are those still things? So let's get to the, the, the ethical part, yes. because I think that, and this is what I was struggling with too, which was, I think he points out rightly that um, often our view of what it means to have sort of moral character depends on, on, uh, on a narrative, right? Right. Where we say like, and this is what shaped me, or at least it depends. It seems to really depend in the lay sense of thinking about it or in the way that I think about it on having a continuous diachronic sort of personhood where I think I do think that I am, these are the things that made me a better person or these are the things that made me a worse person as Twitter has made me a worse person. Um, and he wants to fight against this. He says that this is, this is just like a misunderstanding of what it means to be. He makes one, I think, fairly uncontroversial point that if you are a utilitarian or a Kantian, it, you can be an episodic person because right. it's, you can always, whether you experience yourself as continuous, treat somebody as an end in uh, him or herself. You can you can also like act in what you imagine is you know will lead to the greatest net benefit in in welfare. It, that's not threatened by being an episode. Experience your life episodically. You know, one way to think about it in in the extreme is people. Uh, with with uh, anterograde amnesia, like in, in the movie Memento, Memento yeah. right? So in Memento, there's nothing preventing him from following the right rule. Like, you know, there he, he could have internalized at some point he the rule. Said, he just tattoos Khan's categorical yeah. imperative on his chest. Don't masturbate. Yeah. Just don't, like a tattoo that says, don't jerk off. Yeah. You can imagine that you've, you've internalized some sort of rule that, that doesn't require any sense of continuity. It's just that you access that rule every single time you act, yeah. and that's fine. Um, but he says himself, you know, in response to some of these people, that there is something impoverished about both those views, and right. there is there is some sort of way in which... Having your emotions and your your actions connect in the right way, in the way that kind of virtue ethicists think they need to to lead really good, full moral lives, that that these things should cohere in in a proper way, and you should be doing things not just because of some moral principle, but and so then he he says, um, well, but but they. St- they still can, even if you're episodic. Maybe let's like figure out or or, or sketch out why you might think that yeah. an episodic person can't be lead a good or moral life. Um, I do have M. I guess was an M. Maybe a little less after this, but sympathetic to the view that that kind of what what moral character is what a, is that you are improving yourself. That you are you are making decisions that will influence your future self and you act and expose yourself to certain things in, in an attempt to make Tamler time two or David time two, a better person than David time one. And without at the very least a diachronic sense of self, it seems as if the, the guide for, for living a moral life where you think about improving yourself over time, it does, it seems kind of incoherent we might want to separate like a good life and a moral life and the susan wolf kind of way like yeah you know the the extreme form of the you have to live your life narratively is the way to assess whether you've lived a good life is to look at the whole picture 
see sort of as you've said how you've imp- how your character has improved and built and how your experiences and your relationships have enriched your life if you don't see some previous relationship as in some way connected to who you are right now then there's no way to really assess does that resonate at all with you this idea that you get this one life and it has to be that has to have some sort of coherent structure to really assess whether it's a good life or not. Like, otherwise, these experiences just do become too random and disconnected to really assess whether you've had a good life or not. I mean, there's a way in which it almost in assessing a life entails continuity, right? Yeah. And, and I think... I feel like it entails continuity in a deeper way than, right? And again, he's not denying that, that there is no Galen Strawson that existed 10 years ago and one that, you know, it's, he's not, it's not a radical thesis, but I think that even what he's saying isn't enough for assessing the goodness of a life. I think he would reject that that's the proper way of thinking about, you know, the fullness and the richness of existing as a human being. Like, you really shouldn't think of it as assessing a whole life. You should think of it more in terms of making the most out of individual experiences and not expect there to be some sort of form to it that just by virtue of that form adds to the life. Right. Which I'm like more inclined to accept that, that this is just the wrong way of thinking about it. Because if you do think about it that way, it doesn't make sense to me that an episodic person can ever, could ever really lead that kind of a life. Right. Um, so that sort of begs the question against. Yeah. Episodic. Then there's this whole section too, which I kind of the emotional stuff where he says, yeah, where people view guilt about actions as necessary for being a good moral person. And by guilt here, he means a real feeling that you, the you who did something bad is still the same you and that you, that you regret it. And he thinks that this is bad. Like in an enormous sense, he thinks that guilt actually uh, doesn't play uh, the role in morality that we think it does. And, and in fact, it's actually way more damaging that what you, that it's better to say that what you can have is remorse that you were the cause of these things, but well, it doesn't can't require say you, you can't think like if he's well, episodic, he put a little right? asterisk, yeah. he put a little asterisk, right? <laughs> Which kind of annoyed that, me actually. So. Well, this is where you, this is where you can start to question, I think, whether, he really feels these things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you called James Damore a douchebag. You feel differently about that than I feel about it, right? Yeah, I feel like it's critical to to me that I am the same person in a deep sense. Yeah. I, I don't, I find it hard. And he goes on sort of a tirade about guilt, but I... I I, he's definitely talking about the word guilt in a different way than I talk about the word guilt. Like guilt to me is just the emotional output of thinking that you did something wrong and having the motivation to either repair it or not being able to repair it and feeling bad about it. And I, I and I think he's talking about it in this deep sense where you think you're a sack of shit and, and that doesn't motivate you. Right, and that is probably like a that then he's right that that is not a productive feeling. Do, do you buy this remorse 
Uh, I don't. I I couldn't. I it felt that's the part where I felt like he was really just playing mental gymnastics with this, where he was just saying, "No, I can feel as if the actions that that Galen Strawson committed um, at time one." Uh, were the wrong ones and and even make up for it, but that doesn't mean that I think of myself as continuous. At that point, I just have to like, well, okay, I, guess, I guess it just doesn't, it seems as if at that point, he's just saying what I'm saying. It's, it's a terminological difference. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, so here's two ways of defending what he's saying. And I've, you know, as someone who used to kind of defend a similar view, I can get in the head of it. So the, <laughs> you know what your story is, is how you changed your mind. Yeah. Exactly. I was actually thinking that because, you know, he he quotes a paper of mine or he quotes me quoting Nietzsche in a paper of mine uh, (laughs) way back when I totally had different beliefs. And so I do kind of think of that as a kind of narrative of me moving away from that. But you have certain actions that you did that you regret but don't feel guilty over because you don't feel like it's your fault, right? Right. In those instances, that that sucks that that happened. It, it's it's there's nothing about me that that's expressed by the fact that that action occurred because you know you didn't know you had no idea and so but you still feel bad about it and maybe even some urge to repair whatever harm you caused but you don't feel that same sort of connection as you do when you feel guilty where like oh that was you who performed that act so maybe what he's saying is i feel about all actions like you feel about that kind of regretful action where that was you in one sense, like it was your physical body, but it wasn't you, David Pizarro, the person, that character. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So here's where the example that he uses just fails to pull my intuition in the way I think that he wants to pull it, which, which is the, you know, say that you hit somebody else's car because your brakes failed through no, you know, you had no control over it. You didn't know your brakes were failing. There's no, um, and you, you feel bad, uh, to him. That's just how he views his actions in the past. Um, if they were, if they were wrong. And I, like, I, I, de- I definitely feel differently. I feel bad, but I feel bad in a different way. If it was my brakes, than if it was me, even just like, being on my phone or something where like, I feel like I had some agency and, and so I, I just can't, I find that, but that, is it better that you feel the way you do rather than he feels the way he does? Cause that's what we're talking pro- about right now. Like you've already granted that you two experience the world, you know, your lives different. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I at least feel as if there are, uh, different, actions or corrective measures that I would take for brakes failing versus my own character failing. But, but maybe not. I mean, this is another case in which maybe, maybe viewing, viewing the output of my, of my mind and body at time one as, as a thing that happened rather than me having done it. Maybe it would not have a difference or maybe it might even improve the way that I, I mean, I can see how it might actually lead you to implement strategies that might even be more effective by removing your sort of deep personhood from it. 
I, I find it so hard to wrap my head around what it would mean to not have that distinction between things that are me and things that aren't me. Yeah, it's funny. It's like this is where it's really the hardest to sort of relate to the phenomenology of it if you don't experience that phenomenology, which is, I think, why the urge to doubt that he really has the phenomenology <laughs> yeah. kind of is, is at its strongest is because, look, if you really fucked somebody over and you made a choice and you remember making that choice and it's nagging at you like this is something that you're lying in bed at night and just like what the fuck was wrong with me the idea that it's not you that did it it's very hard for me to relate to i yeah Given that it's so hard for me to relate to, it's very hard for me to even assess whether that would be bad or good to feel right. that way. Yeah. Just because it's so it's, not, it's like me trying to figure out how Charlie, my dog, feels about, you know, when he gets caught doing something he shouldn't do. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's productive or not because I can't relate to it. Right. The, the other example that he used, I don't know if you were going to bring this one up, but the other example that he uses to try to pull this intuition is in cases of sort of collective guilt Yeah. Um, that we've talked about before where he says, you know, there are, there are instances in which people clearly feel some sort of responsibility or remorse for things that they had no agency over. And so, you know, that's another case in which just think of that as like, you know, is is how you feel about your past actions. I actually find that that it's exact he that it's exactly wrong in the way that he describes it for my own phenomenology, which is in those cases of collective guilt, it's more like I am projecting my personhood as a part of the thing, as a part of the larger group. That is, my identity is wrapped up in say, say my daughter does something bad. I will feel guilty if she hurts somebody else. Not because I have separated her agency from my own, but rather because it's so intrinsically linked that I can't help but feel bad. But not because, oh, I raised her wrong, right? It's more that you don't fully separate their actions from your actions. Yeah, it's hard for me to introspect on that because I think sometimes it is that, that it, it reflects poorly on what I've done. But not always, for sure. Like when, like when you're... I don't know. Like, how do you feel knowing that the Red Sox were totally caught cheating? Uh, well, first of all, <laughs> that, is, that was a bullshit story that wasn't that, that, that nobody even had the heart to really make a huge fuss of for more than three days. <laughs> Let's stick with the children, because I think these are the... Because you want to revise your narrative and, no, and exclude this. He, I, I actually think, so two things. Like, I actually find that to be a helpful way of sort of understanding what that feels like. Um, so kind of the opposite reaction for you. Like that's right. okay. Now I can get a better sense of what that might feel like. And, and, and maybe you could put it in something you're proud of. Right. So like Eliza right. does something that I'm really proud of and I feel good about it. Like I feel like that kind of positive emotion, but it's not cause I think, Oh, I'm so awesome. Cause I raised her well, or at least that right. certainly couldn't, doesn't capture the Right. You're not giving yourself local credit yeah. for the cause, like as a causal. Force. I actually just feel good about that and i think it's because as as you like as you suggested 
it's not that when when it's somebody that's really close to you it's not at that separate what your achievements are what your kind of acts of sh- your shameful acts are it's not as separate as it is for a total stranger. So like, right. so if he feels like that, and there's actually weirdly not very much like interpersonal stuff that he's talking about, but if he feels like, like that about himself, like he's a family member that did right. something bad or did something good, a really close family member. <laughs> right. I can relate to that more than I can relate to this is a previous incarnation uh, you know of Galen Strawson GS star GS asterisk <laughs> or whatever like that yeah. i can't totally relate to but like uh, yeah i guess i can see that what so but, so what about yeah. the other side of it resentment and kind of vindictive feelings that he talks about mm-hmm. too yeah so he so he's he, it's it's an interesting point so he says you know the the clinging to feelings of revenge is just a kind of a, he doesn't say it this way, but a stupid byproduct of thinking that you are the same person. So the, the, when they harmed you at time one and you're like, you know, 10 years down the line and you're seeking revenge, that's just like a dumb response to the, to the view that you are still the same person who got harmed right. 10 years ago. And I can kind of relate to that, but I don't know if it's from the same mechanism. I find it very easy to let go of things. He adds a kind of twist, which is like as P.F. Strawson, as he calls him, uh, (laughs) says, which is the emotions are going to be felt. In some ways, our experience of self is kind of a post hoc uh, way of making sense of these emotions that we feel. These emotions came on the scene uh, plausibly before the phenomenology and the sense of self came on the scene and that certainly uh, our emotions aren't determined by our sense of whether we're diachronic or episodic. I think it's sort of what we do with them more that uh, and how we understand them and kind of long-term effects of of how we experience life those things can be altered but like we're still going to feel resentment i guess like the the actual emotion the question is whether we sort of entertain it is it like f- being afraid of a uh you know like a uh a, a daddy long legs just because you have a fear of spiders but you know it's not dangerous like or is yeah. it, or is it like something that you actually uh, like you think is appropriate and justified and you're pissed and like here's where i really would want to take him at, at uh, i think at face value for what he's saying which is that anger i don't think requires any connection to our past self like any belief you can be episodic and just feel anger. And that is the maybe evolutionarily old response. But when he starts talking about vengeance, like revenge and those feelings of, of sort of the, the bitter feelings that he's railing against, I, like here's a question for you. Like, is it, is it possible for somebody who has no continuous sense of self to really have that? I, don't, I think that those are the emotions that sort of are born out of our very sense of continuity. That it's anger sort of that is lingers because we keep thinking that somebody did something to us. I mean, we could think of it as 
I don't think he would want to take this out. Like, you would certainly want to get revenge if something, somebody did something to a family member, right? right? So that, but that's clearly an out that he doesn't want to take, at least in this example. Um, because he doesn't want to identify with himself in that kind of close, personal way. Here's where I would challenge whether he really experiences life like this. He came to Houston, we went out to dinner, and I know it's bugged him a little bit. Like, he's, I think he's done, I think Galen Strawson is, uh, like a really interesting philosopher who has done really interesting work on fascinating topics. And I don't think he gets the credit that he deserves um, across the board. So let me just say that. Like, I, I think that he is a, a an underrated philosopher. I think part of that is that he has, you know, he's, he's the son of the most famous philosopher maybe of the 20 one you know a top five famous philosopher the 20th century but whatever the reason i think that this is a guy who should have received more attention than he has and, and significantly more he thinks that too to some degree Right. To, like not as much yeah. as most philosophers would, not as much as like my dad, for example, was, felt this much more strongly. Like it really gnawed at him in a way that I don't see it gnawing at Galen. But I remember talking to him and I remember him being like specifically about some like that, that there is a certain philosopher that has gotten attention for a view that he kind of got there first and right. sort of deserves more than than he ended up getting for it because that ph- that philosopher has a more public profile. Here's my point. Is that an even possible emotion or like cuz <laughs> if he r- really feels that and entertains that idea like because it wasn't I, him that came up with that view before this right. other philosopher that it was a different person. So like, why is that bothering him at all? Right. Even though it's so, not bothering him more than like it's bothering him less than it would bother the average philosopher. Like it seems the fact that it's bothering him at all raises questions. Right, and it wouldn't be a problem if he was endorsing some view like uh, like Parfit, where he said, "No, no, I think this is right." I can't help but lapse into it because like it's such a powerful illusion. He's claiming that he just really doesn't even have this, right. this sense of self. Yeah. So, uh, so unless there is some way in which he feels currently harmed, it's hard for me to understand it. Right. Without, without actually being an, uh, a tacit endorsement. Well, he, he might be currently harmed in that he's not receiving the credit that he should be receiving maybe right. he But it was Galen Strauss and Asterisk is your point that, that yeah. did it. So so so, yeah. so so that yeah, like he shouldn't receive the credit for it. Yeah, yeah. I find it very hard I find it very hard to think that he isn't at least in those times being just like us. So then um, the better way to think of it might be that this is this is a spectrum. Like right. and, and and things like that if you are if you take pride in your profession, like things like that are going to be, that, that, that was the thing that like bothered my dad the most. It like fucked up his life. The fact that he has it toned down as much as he has might suggest that he, you know, experiences right. yeah. his life that way more than most people, you know? Right. 
Yeah. 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 That, that actually might be the case, right? He we, like in, but he definitely does go to, and I don't, I feel like we didn't emphasize this. He definitely does say that this is, you know, this is a spectrum and, and you could fall anywhere on this line. I wanted to get to this when he's talking about the narrative sense, like now moving beyond the, just the diachronic, but actually telling the story, he makes, I think a very good point about the revisionism. So he says that, uh, one of the downsides of having to, to, or, or feeling as if your life is a story is that by dint of finding order in everything, you kind of tell a story that is consistent with your view right. of that, of, yeah. of the rest of your story. And that can actually make you essentially engage in self-deception or be much less open to aspects of yourself that are bad or don't fit in. And so you might, everything from just like misremembering um, to to just like sort of actively refusing in a conscious way to admit um, that that you did something that is in some way bad because you have this positive view of yourself. And I, and I thought this was, here is like where I, I think it would be a very interesting uh, empirical project to sort of have this measure of how much, how much people uh, view their lives as a story and see if in some ways they are more resistant to inconsistent information about, about themselves. About themselves. Yeah. 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 I mean, talk about something that would be hard to measure. But <laughs> well, let's just get some stickers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, that, that, that would be like a really cool study to like, are people more prone to self-deception when they, have a narrative you know this has to be paired with the assumption that we we're motivated to have a, a particularly rosy view of ourselves but that doesn't <laughs> i suppose that you could have a like a horribly negative view of yourself and then fit information into that view as well like you're a piece of shit you know and everything you do is a failure isn't that like that i mean that that's a phenomenon right where people feel that uh, about themselves uh, that like this is all part of some horrible story about you and you're like the villain and like you fuck <sighs> everything up and yeah I mean it seems like a very sort of characteristic of a depressed person yeah um, but it, you know so maybe it could go it could go that way um, but yeah maybe but it could be it, helpful for people who are in that spiral yeah I've, I've always thought actually you know when and Beth Loftus has done all this uh, work on false memory. And one of the things, one of the, the big battles that she's fought is against these people who do, do recovered memory therapy and claim that, you know, through therapy, they were able to like recover these memories about their patients being ritually abused, you know, satanic ritual abuse as a child. And I always thought like, it's so weird that you would want, that you would want to believe that, that that happened. Like there's some, that that would be something that you accept as part of, of what happened to you in the absence of good evidence. Like it seems like pretty fucked up, but I, but I think that what people are doing is when they look at their lives right now and why things are so miserable, they're actively seeking information to explain why their lives are like that. Yeah. And that motivation to explain it's like it. the, yeah. the post hoc kind of exactly yeah. yeah like what 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 story can I tell um, that will that will help me understand why I feel like it's the feelings very hard are prior just, like the feelings yeah. are prior like those are given and then 
Like, and it's not very satisfying to just think, well, like it could be just the, the genetic, I lost the genetic lottery and I have less serotonin than other people do. Right. right? Um, so uh, somehow we've managed to not mention Buddhism in this whole discussion, <laughs> but like clearly the whole idea of Buddhism is essentially to try to get from like you and me to, to Galen <laughs> in, in this sense, right? Like that you are, it's not that you... It's not that you don't recognize that you have some sort of physical and psychological continuity with your previous selves, but you identify less with all these moments that aren't the pre present moment, you know, and you identify right. less with. And it's funny, like there's a, the reason we haven't mentioned it is because he barely mentions it if he does at all. I don't think in right. the two papers. And this is true in his like work on free will, too. But it's just there. You know, there's a lot of similarity. This is the Western Oxford-trained philosopher version of, of, of Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the one time I met him, actually, uh, was at a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist ethics conference. Yeah. So it makes sense. I mean, he's largely trying to make a, a very, spe very specific claim that when people talk about morality they seem to assume that you need the sense of self and he's trying to defeat that claim he's not mounting an argument for why being episodic and non-narrative is better but i can't help but think that is large part of what's driving this view that it that that he believes that that in fact we would be better off if we stopped clinging to this this yeah narrative form right? he's also not making the claim that it would that this is something that you can change really or that you should right. try to change or so th in that way it's very different like he doesn't think this is something that practice he's, he's not urging us to really do anything except stop saying that you need <laughs> to have a narrative view of life of your life in order to lead a good and moral life that's the only thing he's sort of asking us to do that's right. And I think that it leads naturally into the conclusion that Kantian ethics must be the correct ethics. <laughs> <And laughs> let's, let's end on that because <laughs> I don't think we've had one sort of Kantian and no like vaping, e-cigarette, like none none of that. It's Nothing. Like, yeah. This has been a very... So, maybe I'm, you are I'm episodic. In, I'm improving. No, I'm slowly improving my character. <laughs> I hope conscious. that's true. I would love for that to be true. <laughs> it's <an> obvious. <laughs> Uh, All right. Join us next time. Very bad boys. Just a very bad wizard.